With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. How you doing, Fish Stripes fam? Welcome to a new episode of Fish Bites on the Fish Stripes podcast. Extensive, year-round, fun coverage of the Miami Marlins and related topics. What do you think of the intro music that we've been using on these episodes? It's been the same for several months, dating back even before I was hosting on a regular basis, just when I was producing the pod, and I'm just wondering if it's grown stale or something, and it's an opportunity for me to remind you that if you have comments and feedback on the music, the production, the topic choice, if you have suggestions for what you want to hear on the pod that we're not already covering, anything at all, you're encouraged to give me that feedback directly at Fishstripes on Twitter or Instagram. You can shoot an email to me at eli.sussman at gmail.com, Eli spelled E-L-Y, any of those methods to get in touch with me or even comment on the article when, when we post these new episodes on the website in their own articles. You could just comment directly there. We want to know how we're doing with the podcast. All the reps that we've had here in 2019, I believe, have, have made it better and a lot more directly towards the matters that fans are interested in, but I could be wrong, and that's why I always want to hear from you guys to guide the direction of the show so that it complements what we're doing on the rest of Fish Stripes platforms, but we want to also be doing some exclusive things here that are different from what we do on other mediums. And already looking forward, Just we haven't even started this one really, but already looking ahead to the next episode, after you listen to this one in its entirety, and after you leave a review and all that, after you get through with this episode, we have another one already lined up featuring a special guest it's been a minute since we've actually had a guest on the pod with me, and so that one's about to change. It's already set up. It's going to go up after the completion of the World Series between the Astros and Nationals, and I'll keep the subject's identity a secret for the time being, but a hint, it is a Fox Sports Florida personality from the network that brings you TV broadcasts of every single regular season Marlins game, a different perspective from you guys. Look out for it. Make sure you're subscribed to the pod, if not already, so that you get that interview as soon as it goes up and the rest of the episode surrounding that. In the meantime, we have a lot of topics to cover. Uh, The first that I'm going to touch on being on the prospect side, congratulating the Marlins from their great performance in the Arizona Fall League. So a quick introduction on that for those that are not familiar. Uh, Well, this year was a little different than in the past, but the Fall League has been around for now almost 30 years in Arizona, where they use spring training facilities that some of the West Coast teams use at the major league level. At the beginning of the year, they are now vacant and available for the top prospects in the minor leagues to use at this time of year. It puts top prospects from all 30 MLB teams head-to-head-to-head, putting those players on rosters 
and going through about 28-29 game regular season. Saturday was the championship game. The Marlins participated in that, and the organization racked up a lot of awards, uh, the first of which being one off the field for the inaugural Arizona Fall League Organization Leadership Award went to the Miami Marlins out of all 30 organizations. There was the one that on the player side and on the executive side made the biggest impression out there in the desert. Many key members of the Marlins offered their in-person support for their players and for the league. Darren Jeter, you know, Don Mattingly, you know, uh, Mike Hill, Brian Chatton, Mel Stoudemire, you know, everybody, all the all the major league staff and everybody that, that calls the shots in our organization uh, was here to watch these guys and, and they all performed well in front of them, I believe. For the collective efforts, the Marlins earned the inaugural Arizona Fall League Organization Leadership Award, given annually to the team that meets or exceeds their obligations to their four AFL team partners, something incredibly solid to place in the foundation of an organization. The Salt River Rafters winning that game by the score of 5-1 to one over Surprise and a rare postseason win for anybody associated with the Marlins. Of course, at the major league level, they haven't had any of those dating back to 2003, even with, with much lower stakes in this case, playing with some quote-unquote teammates that aren't even in your organization. It's just nice practice, and to see these guys step up in that situation, if you combine the three hitters that played, they went 4 for 11 overall in this game, and it was Alex Vessia who threw the final pitches of the AFL season, closing the door and sealing that victory. The fall league season ran from the middle of September until here in late October, which means you're dealing with a limited sample size. Nobody here was a true everyday player. The rosters were somewhat overcrowded and it was a juggling act to make sure everybody got some reps in. That's a big reason why they're in the fall league in the first place is usually to make up for time missed due to injury during the regular season, or in some cases, it's just to face a higher level of competition that you don't see during the typical major league season is a high concentration of top prospects. For the Marlins, four of their seven players are ranked among their top 20 prospects, according to MLB Pipeline or Baseball America. Pretty much everyone's on the same page about Nidert, Devers, Encarnacion, and Mesa. All of them are future major leaguers for some degree, but it's now trying to identify exactly what their strengths and weaknesses are compared to other elite talent and what kind of role they'll translate into during the future. Uh, More so than anybody, uh, Nick Neidert had the most impressive results uh, among those top prospects, a 1.25 earned run average, and that's not even including a couple scoreless innings pitched in the Fall Stars game. Struck out 19 in 21 in two-thirds innings pitched. That was split over five different starts. The big encouraging aspect is that he only walked two batters in 21 and two-thirds innings pitch. That's typical of what he had done earlier in his career, but not so much in 2019 as he was dealing with a knee injury and a lot of off time in the middle of the year to recover from that knee injury. Very, very encouraging. More so than anybody here, he is a lock to appear at some point for the Marlins during the 2020 season. And frankly, he would have been called up even earlier than that had it not been for that knee injury and inconsistency. We, we already talked about Nidert on a recent episode, so going into more detail about those position players, Jose Devers, he suffered a sore, a sore hand right in the middle of the fall league that cost him a few weeks. That was disappointing, um, but he really um, salvaged something towards the end of it. 
over the final week plus. He got back onto the field and in the lineup, he stole four bases over just that final week of the season, and he started hitting uh, even for extra bases, which is the big surprise. He acquired in the Giancarlo Stanton trade, and he has turned out to be even more so than George Guzman. He has turned out to be what seems to be the most valuable asset acquired for Stanton because he projects to be a shortstop at the highest level. During the fall league, he was playing second base. As I mentioned before, it is an overcrowded roster with top prospects, including ones that are also are projected as shortstops. So he was forced off of his usual position to the right side of the infield. And by all accounts, he really acclimated himself well defensively to that new spot. But he was the youngest player representing the Marlins in the fall league. Only 19 years old, he turns 20 in December. So a lot of time ahead for him to continue bulking up and to... Uh, keep adjusting his swing, but very encouraging overall, knowing the caliber and experience of the competition that he was going up against. Victor Victor Mesa playing a lot of center field during the fall league. He had a minor knee scare, like during the fall stars game, it only ended up costing him a couple games and he had more played appearances than anybody for the Marlins during this fall league. He early in the fall league, he was among the league leaders in their batting race and since came back down to earth quite a bit. Uh, overall, it was fine for him. Uh, there were some mixed reviews on how athletic he looked, maybe trying to play through that knee injury, slowing him down a little bit. Again, all this is really small sample. 279 hitter, 297 on base, a 329 slugging. All that is a little bit better than the regular season. His regular season was a disaster, and there's really no way to sugarcoat that. Um, given the pretty conservative assignment going to high A Jupiter, and he just didn't hit at all. Everything pounded into the ground, and from what I was able to see in the fall league, that continues to be somewhat of an issue for him. It's just the trajectory, his launch angle is a lot lower than you'd like. You can't do all that much damage if you're keeping the ball in the infield. That's going to be a big adjustment for him going forward. With Encarnacion, um, a lot of positive, but some negative too with his game. He hit for a lot of power. If you include that grand slam on Saturday, four home runs, 20 RBIs for him in 71 total at-bats, including that game. Uh... So very strong run production, key production in the clutch situations that he came up in. Uh, 269 hitter overall, slugged 433. He was about a league average hitter, maybe a tad better than that, coming off a season that was a big breakout for him at both low A Clinton, and he continued somewhat at high A Jupiter. Uh, but for him, the big question moving forward is going to be his defense. Played a lot of corner outfield here in the desert, and he committed five errors. This is, as we said, barely over a month of games overall and charged with five outfield errors. If you combine his regular season with the Fall League, 20 errors committed as an outfielder for all his strong arm strength that he makes a big impact for the positive with his arm. Uh, he's made a lot of mistakes in terms of covering ground and in terms of simply fielding the ball as well. There are some big question marks with his defensive position. He experimented a little bit with first base during the regular season, and we're not going to mention him on this episode as we go through our next ultimate Marlins depth charts installments, talking about catchers and first basemen. Not putting him in that group yet, but I would not be surprised that further down the road in this organization that you're about to find out is kind of short on first base candidates. I would not be surprised at all if he's someone they seriously consider for a position change moving forward uh, to make sure that his bat 
to help him focus on his hitting because for right now the mistakes that he's making in the field are uh, taking away somewhat of his overall value as a player. And finally, touching on Fall League performance, I want to bring up Alex Vessia. We did mention him just on this most recent episode on the previous depth charts breakdown going through left-handed pitching. He is the most excited left-handed reliever that the Marlins have in their organization. He was just drafted in 2018, so barely a year ago, and already made it up to AA, and now here in the Fall League. If you combine his Fall Stars game performance and his final performance in the championship game, 12 total innings pitched, no runs allowed, near perfection. He didn't allow very many base runners to begin with either. Just dominance. Dominance from a guy that um, he only averaged 93 miles per hour on his fastball, which in today's day and age, especially for a reliever, that is below average. He does not have that special velo that you usually look for in a shutdown closer. And yet the results are there. It's the high spin rate that he has, uh, it, the way that he pairs that fastball with a slider and a changeup. It's a great combination of pitches that have enough separation in velo to keep the hitters off balance. And it's that spin rate that allows his stuff to play up better than you can measure it traditionally. This was a really encouraging sign for him. 23 years old. Uh, I think it would be rushing him to put him on the opening day roster, but with all the holes that the Marlins have in their bullpen in the near term and then projecting forward, he is really exciting. I'm really excited to see him perhaps at some point in 2020 because every single test that he has faced from the rookie leagues to low A, high A, and double A, he has succeeded. And that just kept going here against the top prospects from across all of baseball. Congratulations to Vessia, to all seven of these guys, to Keith Johnson, who managed the Salt River Rafters, and to all the front office members that came out in support of the Marlins. This was a big success out in the desert, and they made a strong impression on the rest of the baseball, showing themselves to be a group of talent that needs to be feared moving forward, and all of whom could be impacting the Marlins in the majors in the near future. If you've been listening to Fish Bites dating back to the regular season when Danny Martinez was hosting, you remember there being this sense of inevitability that Don Mattingly was not going to survive as Marlins manager. For a variety of reasons, that Mattingly may have just been a victim of circumstance and that he'd be going out the door and the Marlins would be one of, it turns out, many teams that would be looking for a replacement. And they surprised a lot of us when they extended Mattingly last month, at least for the next two years, 2020 and 2021. Earlier this week, the Marlins made a very interesting hire. In my eyes, James Rousen is now their manager-in-waiting. He had served as hitting coach for the Twins over the last three seasons with plenty of success. Here he is explaining part of his philosophy in getting the most out of his young players. Just simply, each, each hitter's a little bit different, like we talked about. So, you know, you're going to have some guys have different strengths than others, and they're going to be able to control different parts of the zone. What I want to find out first before I tell you anything is to find out what you're naturally good at and then kind of build off of what you do well. I think the minute you start deciding that every hitter has to do something a certain way, you might reach one or two hitters, but you're going to lose the other eight out of ten because those, those eight are not going to have the same strengths as those two. Like the Marlins have not officially announced this hire as of yet. They're going to wait until they put their full coaching staff together for 2020 before doing so. 
the the news though was broken by Jeff Passan of ESPN. He is about as credible as they get on these matters, and it has since been confirmed by the reports. Rosen is going to come to the Marlins, not as their hitting coach though. He'll be serving as the bench coach. So second in command right under Mattingly, as well as the offensive coordinator is what they're calling it. If you're confused by that, saying that term in baseball, you're not alone. I, I don't actually know if there are very many other teams, only a couple, I believe, that use that same term for anybody on their staff. For the Marlins, as described, I believe, by Craig Mish, uh, detailing that he'll actually be working to some extent with all levels of the Marlins organization. It's kind of being the the lead hitting coach for the organization as a whole, where other hitting coaches at the lower minor league levels will be learning from him in spring training about best practices. They're trying to unify the Marlins under a single philosophy for how to maximize production at the plate. A few more biographical details about James Rosen. He grew up in New York, in fact, in Mount Vernon, New York, which is a city that I know well. It's just a few cities over from where I grew up in New Rochelle, New York. So that's not going to make me biased, but it is definitely something that stuck out to me because that is not typically regarded as a professional baseball hotbed. He did play at the professional level both in the Mariners organization and then in the Yankees organization. If, if you know how the Marlins are being run right now with Jeter and with Gary Denbo, those guys have strong ties, of course, to the Yankees, and that very likely had an influence on why they were interested in Rosen in the first place. With the Yankees, he spent two separate stints as their minor league hitting coordinator. So, again, that ties in a little bit to his new role as an offensive coordinator, where it's not necessarily all that different from what he did back then except instead of being hands-on at the different affiliates, he's going to be, of course, sitting on the bench in the Major League dugout for all 162 games. And a very creative hybrid role that the Marlins feel is going to maximize his talents as both a, a leader and an instructor on the hitting side. A key difference between the Marlins offense and the Twins offense this past season, aside from the obvious that one was much better than the other, is in the ground ball rate how now the last seven seasons in Major League Baseball, the Marlins each year have led the majors in ground ball rate, which is just impossible to even get your mind around because of all the change on the player side that they've had during those years and also on the hitting coach side. This past year, they made a midseason change, entering it with Mike Pagliarulo as the hitting coach and then replacing him with that tandem of Jeff Livesay and Eric Duncan. Those two are remaining in the organization. Uh, it seems likely that they'll still be on the Major League staff, although that is yet to be determined the exact configuration involving Rosen and Livesay and Duncan. Uh, even after the hitting coach changed, the offense struggled a lot this past year. And yeah, the one particular thing is the ground ball rate this year, about 50% of their batted balls hit on the ground where the best possible thing you can really get when you hit on the ground is maybe a double that hugs one of the foul lines, but more often than not, it's a simple out, and frequently for the Marlins this past year, it was a double play that really put a stop on any rally that they had going. You just don't want to hit that many ground balls. It's as simple as that, and there's no better proof of that than the Twins. The Twins led the league in not hitting ground balls. They had the lowest ground ball rate by a pretty wide margin in baseball, and it was one of the lower ground ball rates on record, below 40% for any team in recent history. Uh, their launch angle overall as a team was the highest, nearly a 15-degree average launch angle on their batted balls, coming from a, a big variety of hitters. 
And what's difficult is trying to distinguish between which of this is simply the players improving and the combination of players that they're seeking as a front office. And of course, what is Rosen doing? In, in te- what is he telling them that is leading to these type of changes in their game and in the overall results? As a part of this hiring, they did not get any Twins players to come along with them. Now we'll see as this offseason plays out whether they try to acquire anybody that Rosen has worked with personally during his three years with the Twins. That'll be interesting to follow. I don't want to call this a quote-unquote great hire. I've seen that type of sentiment going around. Of course, you want to seek a guy that has had the results to back up um, what people are saying about him personally. He is widely regarded as a nice guy that works well with others and very collaborative. That's a key word for baseball today that might not have necessarily been true in the past is collaborating um, with different people and not necessarily limiting a person to a single responsibility and trying to be accountable as a group for whatever happens on the field. So do the Marlins have the type of group surrounding Rosen that he had with the Twins that will put these players in positions to be successful? Certainly, there are important differences between where he was at Target Field and where he's going now at Marlins Park. The dimensions of the ballpark are different. The environmental conditions in the ballparks are different. And now the designated hitter rule is not at his disposal. That will influence what he tells his team to do offensively and how it all works together to produce uh, what you want ideally as a circular lineup that doesn't have any holes in it and is very productive overall but what I wanted to get back to was the original thought that I believe James Rosen is here to eventually manage the Marlins and they're not going to say that now and it certainly is premature to say that before he actually begins working with Marlins players and working under Don Mattingly and seeing what that relationship is like and some of this is contingent on how the team does on the field over these next couple years under Don Mattingly but I don't think this is all about just being a, a hitting guru because that type of language gets thrown around a lot. And we see that these specialists that are highly regarded for teaching one particular thing that doesn't necessarily translate to a new environment. There are just all you can count on one hand, really, the kind of veteran coaches that specialize in teaching something and have consistent results, even as the players themselves change. Not all this stuff is very repeatable. There are a lot of people that put great attention into being teachers and trying to find universal things that work, and it's not that easy. I mean, the mar- the differences uh, between one coach and another aren't as dramatic as we like to imagine sometimes. But with Rosen, the fact that he had this long Yankees background, someone who had been in the organization for years, overlapping with both Derek Sheeter and Gary Denbo in the Yankees organization, they got to know him well, and because of that, they bring him over for a reason. He has all this coaching experience now for most of this a millennium since the 2000s he's been in coaching that experience is certainly applicable and for now he's going to be the second in command under Mattingly at some point this year you would think that whether it's an, an ejection or just a personal absence from Mattingly that Rosen will get a chance to manage games in person and make some of those key decisions and the front office will be looking at that very closely but this guy's highly regarded on a number of different levels in terms of both personally and in his baseball acumen he is, to me, um, set up to be that front runner to manage the Marlins someday. And for that reason, uh, I'm just excited to see this play out. Not going to 
necessarily congratulate them on making any any move until we actually start playing these games and more importantly until they start working together directly hands-on in Jupiter for revving up for the 2020 season he's going to be earning this job by what he does under Mattingly he's going to be earning his job before it's actually time to search for a replacement but I can see a lot of reasons why this young guy is being seen as a, a guy who could lead the Marlins moving forward and it's a big acquisition whenever you're able to steal away a highly regarded coach from another successful team so there's still a few more positions left to fill on the 2020 Marlins coaching staff and we'll be following those developments as they come along for the final segment of this episode of fish bites we're going to continue our ultimate Marlins depth chart series our position-by-position breakdown of the talent in the organization right now at all different levels. Uh, Two episodes ago, we kicked this off with the right-handed pitching. Last episode, we went to the left-handers. So between those two, we've now covered all the pitching side on all the different levels of the organization. We can now move on to position players. That's the area where, over the last year plus, the Marlins have made huge strides in addressing, understanding they had a surplus on the pitching side, and now they've balanced that out. The draft has certainly been a big help with that, concentrating all their assets at the top early rounds of the last two drafts on bulking up the depth that they have at different positions. Not going to cover all the positions in one episode. We want to give all these players their due attention. What we're doing this time is combining the catchers and the first baseman. Neither of those positions are especially deep at this very moment. You can always see position changes further down the road from other guys that may move to these spots. Uh, But for the time being, it, it seems natural to combine these two together, catcher and first base. It's breaking into four different categories, uh, the first being the major leaguers, the ones who finish the year as major leaguers uh, and who are on the field for the Marlins in 2019. The next category will be the 2020 ETAs, the ones who will be presumably called up next year, health permitting, and if their production remains as projected, then there will be the next waves of talent not locks at all to come up during this coming season, but in the near future, down the road, already in the organization and developing ones to look forward to and talent that was highly regarded at the time of being acquired by the Marlins. And then there are the curiosities at the end who don't fit neatly into any of the previous categories, but are certainly worth mentioning and describing in some detail in case you aren't already familiar with them. We begin with your Marlins starting catcher, Jorge Alfaro. A 262 batting average in 2019, 312 on base percentage, and a 425 slugging, 18 home runs in his 465 plate appearances. Even before beginning the regular season with the Marlins, coming after coming over in the JT Real Muto trade, it was obvious that this guy has immense raw tools. As a runner, especially for a catcher, it is unreal how quickly he gets down the first baseline, how much he hustles on every single play and puts pressure on opposing fielders. His raw power is amazing. Some of the longest home runs that anybody on the Marlins roster hit this past year. And behind the plate, his throwing arm to second base is about as strong as anybody's. On the negative side, he has some trouble just putting the bat on the ball. I mean, a strikeout rate in the mid-30s, one of the highest strikeout totals for a season for any Marlin ever, despite the fact that he actually wasn't qualified for the batting title or any other league leaderboards. 
uh, yeah, for the most part, stayed healthy this year, had some nagging injuries, including a brief scare with a concussion after taking a foul ball to the mask. But overall, you know, 465 plate appearances. If you do that every year, uh, that puts your team in a pretty good shape to have a kind of catcher like that. Not everybody is going to be real Muto when it comes to durability. So realistically, it was a fine first season for him, but a lot of questions about putting the bat on the ball, relying on good fortune on balls in play, but also, you know, some legitimately very hard contact. So the tools were there. Um, this discipline that he has as a batter needs to improve a lot and more so than probably anybody on the team. It's going to be so interesting to see how he interacts with James Rosen and just tries to put his tools um, in a position to shine to their fullest extent. And there's still some distance that he has to go in that department. And he's young enough, and he seems to be willing enough to make adjustments and reach his full potential, potentially as a Marlins all-star as as soon as 2020. Garrett Cooper played both first base and some corner outfield spots for the Marlins in 2019. He put up a 281 batting average, 344 on base, 446 slugging, 15 home runs, and 421 plate appearances. He had some amazing highs right in the middle of the year after coming back from, I guess, his calf injury it was. Around in late May, June, early July, he was fantastic for that stretch. One of the better hitters in the league, showing power to all fields and very, very disciplined in the process as well. Uh, I'm putting him at first base for the time being because you need to remember that Neil Walker is a pending free agent. Uh, Martin Prado is a pending free agent. And, of course, neither of those guys were as productive as Cooper was this past year. So it gives you reason to believe that the Marlins won't make a strong bid to re-sign them. They may look for another comparable type of player that as a backup to Cooper and someone that could platoon with him and offer some flexibility. But for the time being, Cooper is a front runner to see the lion's share of playing time at first base next year. Of course, the one thing that has held him back both this year and even more so in previous years is his durability and lack thereof. A variety of nagging injuries. Uh, more so in 2018, it was that wrist issue that bit him a couple times, eventually requiring season-ending surgery. There's no surgery this year, but a couple injuries, uh, some just bad luck on getting hit by pitches, but others in the field. Uh, you may remember that his season ended early. He, he ended with an injury on trying to make a sliding play in the outfield. So that's just another reason why you may see more of a focus on being a first baseman, where there's less there's less of a risk of being involved in any contact plays if you're at first base as compared to the outfield. Uh, the running, of course, is is minimalized, and he has that strong arm in right field. It'll be interesting to see how that plays at first base. You're not taking full advantage of that if you're putting him at this position, but all things considered, you want to put him in a position to like fully perform as an offensive player because even last year he was well above league average as an offensive player and for a Marlins team that had so many holes in the lineup uh, now there was a slump pretty late in the year in August especially where Cooper was struggling big time but outside of that he was a really great hitter and he's right you would think in the prime of his career so just keep him healthy and put him in a position where you can see him as a big fearsome bat right in the middle of the lineup. The results for Austin Dean were a little bit more complicated. He hit 225 at the major league level this past year, a 261 on base percentage, 404 slugging, 
homering six times in 181 plate appearances. The majority of those home runs came in September after his most recent call-up, and he did spend the majority of this year with AAA New Orleans, where he was amazing. Now, he was a big breakout prospect in the organization in 2018, and he went on to win Minor League Player of the Year. Remember how excited people were when he got brought up for the first time in August 2018, and the results this year, um, a little bit better than they were in 2018 when they had that initial letdown. Uh, The complicating factor with him is defensively, where he rates as one of the worst defensive outfielders in the majors so far in his young major league career. He's been primarily used in left field um, with a cup of coffee in right field as well, but the instincts, uh, the arm strength, and just the mobility, uh, none of them are ideal for that position, even though that is where he's played throughout the majority of his pro career. He's now 26 years old. He was formerly an early round draft pick of the Marlins way back in, what was it, 2012, coming out of high school. He's been in the organization a long time. Uh, You can hear him as a contributor to the Swings and Mishes podcast, where he lets his personality out a little more. Uh, Just from watching Marlins games and seeing him in the dugout and how he interacts with teammates, and of course he had that viral video where warming up between innings, he threw a ball from left field all the way over the fence to knock down a big pyramid of beer cans uh, that was on those like sneaky highlights of the entire marlins year that didn't even happen technically uh during a live play showing great accuracy in that one instance with the throwing ball um all that being said he did play first base towards the end of the year and very very limited sample size but i was impressed with some of the fundamentals that he showed his footwork there and even his ability to pick balls in the dirt. He is short for that position. He's about my height, what, 5'10", 5'11". So that is not ideal for a first baseman, but you want to put him in a position to get the most out of his bat because now a couple years in a row at AAA, he's shown to be an amazing offensive force. It doesn't really add up that he's struggled this much hitting at the major league level, and he's not going to be a full-time, everyday starter, I don't think, at any position. But he's still important. He can still have an important role on this Marlins team. Uh, They're going to face a very interesting 40-man roster jam coming up. It'll be interesting to see whether they find a spot for Dean or if they consider trading him. Uh, I'd like to see them give him a little bit of a longer look at first base um, because for the time being in 2020, you have Cooper and his injury concerns. The free agent crop at this position is not very attractive. Uh, He deserves one more shot, in my opinion. And then there's Chad Wallach, 250 batting average, 333 on base, 375 slugging with the Marlins, uh, one home run in his 54 plate appearances, missed the entire second half of the season with concussion and a concussion-related symptoms. Very scary situation. We mentioned with Alfaro, he had his own scare during the middle of the year, came back after one week, didn't show any ill effects after that, but it's a very inexact situation that's hard to quantify with Wallach, he had a couple false starts where they already sent him out for minor league rehab assignments, and he had to be recalled from those because the symptoms flared up again and he couldn't compete. So his health is a big question mark at this moment. He's on the 60-day injured list, not the 40-man roster. In a few days, he'll have to be reinstated, and I'll be curious what the Marlins do over there, whether they feel that you finish so you're healthy and able to overcome all of that. Um, it's just really inexact. We've seen this stuff derail careers before when it turns out to just catch you in the wrong part of the head. And it would be really disappointing because he was 
a breakout story in spring training, and he showed it very early in the year before the concussions that he looks like a very viable major league catcher and showed a lot of improvement compared to 2018. This would be a good opportunity for him. Uh, he's only the second catcher that we're going to mention at the major league level because Brian Holiday elected free agency recently when the Marlins tried to outright him to the minors. Uh, Holiday, uh, of course, hit very well at the major league level this year and has a longer track record. We'll see if the Marlins consider re-signing him in free agency or if they go after another catcher of that ilk, uh, knowing that Wallach's health may be a big question mark moving forward. Uh, when he's healthy, he looks like a, a very solid choice for that backup spot behind Alfaro. But just dealing with the reality of the situation, it's still a big question mark, and it will dictate what the Marlins do this offseason in terms of trying to improve at that position and give themselves some real depth. Our next category on the 2020 estimated time of arrivals, it only has one player in it, and it's Lewin Diaz, acquired from the Twins in a midseason trade. Uh, we're going to combine all of his minor league stats from three different organizations, from the Twins and then the Marlins with A Jacksonville. He hit 270 in the minor leagues with a 321 on base percentage, 530 slugging, 27 home runs in 501 plate appearances, a much-needed power bat for this organization. Uh, his results down the stretch with Jacksonville weren't quite as good as what he had with the Twins early in the year, but if you've been following Fish Stripes, we're staying on top of all the off-season leagues being held. Lewin Diaz is with uh, the Dominican Winter League, the Estrellas Orientales, and he is off to a great start in Winter League, where he's playing up against much older competition for the most part, and he continues to hit for great power and coming through in clutch situations. I believe it's his first year as like an everyday player in a winter league like this. Even though he was healthy for most of the year with both organizations, the Marlins want to get a longer look at what he can do in a winter league because that's why he's in this category because he's on the short list of guys that would be called up in the near future to be reinforcements for this Marlins lineup. Diaz had this big breakout year. He had long been regarded as a top prospect with the Twins. They paid a lot of money to sign him originally out of the DR as an amateur, and he hadn't quite lived up to that hype until here in 2019. The The Twins sold high on him in order to get Sergio Romo and Chris Valamont, and the Marlins traded for him, believing in this breakout. So, so far, pretty good, considering what he's doing in the DR. He has a very smooth left-handed swing, and really, more importantly, defensively as a first baseman, he is great. He reportedly was heavier in his previous years, so losing some weight has given him more athleticism at that position, and he does all the little things that you want to do as a defensive first baseman, and the Marlins could use that because whether it's Cooper or Austin Dean at the major league level at this moment, uh, both of those guys aren't quite as smooth as what we've seen from Diaz. He really wants to be an everyday player, the one concern that I had about him coming over in the trade is um, that he's gone. I thought he went a little too extreme with the launch angle revolution. That he has a bad habit of getting underneath the ball and hitting pop ups and short fly balls when you move to the major leagues, and especially at Marlins Park with the way the ball doesn't carry as well. I had some concerns about whether he would see the same type of success or whether he'd have a lot of would be minor league home runs that fall short of going out of the bar, uh, going out of the park and coming up short. Uh, so that's going to be something to follow moving forward is 
how exactly his stuff would play at the highest level of competition, whether he'll be able to hit lefties well going up to the major leagues. Um, but he's just coming off a great year, and he looks to be a reinvented player. He should be a motivated player, knowing the opportunities ahead of him with the Marlins. Should be seeing a lot of time with AAA Wichita when the Marlins relocated minor league affiliate early next year. And by the All-Star break, I, I think depending on what's happening at the major league level, he's someone that will get some serious consideration to finally break through, break through and help this offense improve dramatically from where it's been the past two years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Talking about these next waves of Marlins players will include both catchers and first basemen, a few of each that are of interest right now. The first being Lazaro Alonso, the massive Cuban slugger. He had 282 this past year, most of that with high A Jupiter, a little bit with Jacksonville. Uh, 381 on base percentage overall, a 418 slugging percentage, 12 home runs in his 491 plate appearances. Keep in mind, the Florida State League, where Jupiter plays, is extremely pitcher-friendly, very limited run production. So when you put that into perspective with the numbers he had, it's not a, not a good season, but a great offensive season for Alonzo. Um, overall, still not hitting the over-the-fence power that the Marlins envisioned when they signed him several years ago, but this was a step forward for him. He was kind of blocked from going to AA only because of the trade for Lewin Diaz. That's really the most appropriate level for him right now as being in Jacksonville. Uh, you need to keep in mind that he is older than the typical player at his level. He's now a 25-year-old and he looked a little bit like what Leywin Diaz was a few years ago before slimming down. Alonzo is heavy set, and that does hurt him certainly running and defensively, where I think we're including him as a first baseman in this conversation, but frankly, he is the spitting image of a designated hitter. I don't see any situation where he's uh, like an above average defensive first baseman and really getting him to an acceptable level. That's going to be a very big key in his development. And there's obviously no other position where you can hide him for the moment other than being coming off the bench or being a DH when that rule finally comes to the national league. Realistically, that's the projection for him as being a, a probably a quality pinch hitter at the major league level. Uh, assuming he's able to tap into more of this over the fence power uh, for the time being, seeing that plate discipline is a big plus, 381, that on-base percentage, one of the very highest marks out of all the full-season players. He can identify strikes, and he does have good exit velocity, but he's not getting that optimal launch angle on his swings right now to fully take advantage of it, and it's encouraging to see that he's close to reaching the highest level. Maybe not in 2020, that depends on how things shake up down the stretch late in the season, but perhaps just one year Beyond that, 2021, that's the most likely target date for him to try to crack a spot on the roster as a valuable bat off the bench. Drafted by the Marlins in 2018, Nick Fortes spent this year with Jupiter as their main 
catcher behind the plate, a 217 batting average, 293 on base, 308 slugging, three home runs in 297 plate appearances. I just described the conditions in the Florida State League. And so for Fortes, those are, even when you make that adjustment, it's a below average offensive output, yet it was a really big challenge for him because of the situation that they're in with this organization. We're about to go into Will Banfield in a few moments, and the fact that you have Banfield as a like legitimate catching prospect who needs to play every day, and you have Fortes as a legitimate catching prospect, and you can't have them on the same team if they're going to get their kind of reps that you want to see and try to prove themselves as true future major league catchers. So they had to split them up at different levels, and that has meant aggressive assignments for both of them where Fortes is at the high A level, and that's a little unusual to see this guy open up at high A, having been drafted just the previous year. Uh, Some questions about what he does defensively. Uh, Overall, as a team, Jupiter, with Alonzo and Fortes and a handful of other suspects, they were not a strong defensive team this past year, and that put their pitchers in some stressful positions that you wouldn't want to see. So there's going to be some improvement needed for him on containing pitches in the dirt, as well as pitches that are missing in all different directions. Being a flexible catcher who could block the ball, he doesn't have that compact build that's typical of a catcher. Uh, So that's going to be an interesting adjustment for him defensively to try to prove himself. He was hitting a lot more in his very limited stint in the minors in 2018, so this was somewhat of a step back in that department even when you adjust for the level of competition. It'll be curious to see what exactly his next move is in the organization because of that production. Um, He's the highest, most advanced catcher that we're going to be talking about here in terms of the level that he was at in 2019. They don't have any intriguing guys right now at AA and AAA that are close to breaking through or even in this next wave. So because of that void, um, you wonder what the Marlins are going to do, whether it comes via trade or some sort of long-time journeyman signing that they make in minor league free agency, um, that's something to watch out on because they have that void right now in AA and AAA. It's unclear who's going to get the catching reps at those spots, and somebody has to. The question is whether the Marlins will look for an organizational filler or if they see a need to add more depth at that level. Uh, That will dictate exactly where Fortes opens up his 2020 season is how the Marlins address that position I'm just going to drop that hint right now where I think you see some interesting move for the Marlins to acquire an additional catcher somewhere to fill in their minor league organization. First baseman Evan Edwards had a strong first impression in the Marlins organization coming out of the draft. 281 batting average, 357 on base, 442 slugging. He mashed nine home runs in his 308 plate appearances. Almost all that was with the Clinton Lumber Kings. And for a few days, he passed through Batavia as well. He is well-regarded defensively. He had a long streak of errorless games when he was at North Carolina State, drafted as a senior. So he's already very experienced and seemed to perform this well, um, even at a full-season level. You need to put that disclaimer out there that he was very experienced at college beforehand, and that gave him a leg up, you'd think, on some of the competition that he was facing in terms of his experience level. All in all, though, he was a really good run producer in clutch situations as well. And the fact that he has those defensive skills, uh, you can see on our social media accounts at Fish Stripes. So we have a few of his highlights of defensive plays that he made this past year. But I'll be sure to include those when we put this podcast out as well in the article form so you can see it. 
He, in terms of picking balls in the dirt, uh, the range that he has in both directions as a fielder, the accuracy of his throwing arm, he, he has he checks all the boxes as a true defensive first baseman, but he is still a while to go before he's a reinforcement at the major league level, having just played at low A this past year. Um, as things currently shake out, um, it's very likely that he starts next year in Jupiter, and then we'll see where he moves from there. Um overall, I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, He was just a really solid player for Clinton, a team that won a ton of games during their second half of the season. And Evan Edwards had a huge role in that successful brand of baseball that they played. A teammate of Edwards at Clinton this past season, Will Banfield, a 199 batting average, 252 on base, 310 slugging, nine home runs in 433 plate appearances. This was a big test for Banfield, being that it was his first full season in pro ball. Coming out of high school, he'd never been through this kind of experience before in that many reps, so they were a little bit careful with him, where he didn't start every single game this past year, but certainly had the lion's share of work behind the plate. And you already see the offense, but even when the Marlins drafted him, there was a lot of excitement about that. He had had that commitment to go to Vanderbilt, it wasn't expected that he was going to be all that signable for the Marlins, and yet they found that signing bonus number that he was agreeable to. It was a big celebration to add him to the organization. We've had him on the podcast, and he's a really down-to-earth personality. He's actually been on the podcast a couple different times, once here on Fish Bites, and then again on A-Ball with Eric Ose more recently. So you've heard a lot of him explaining his mindset at the plate and the reasons why he decided to turn pro as a teenager instead of going to college. And, uh, I mean, I still think he made the right decision. It's just the big question of him moving forward, is that bat, and whether he has enough in it to really make himself a full-time starter at the highest level moving forward. Because there are no doubts about him defensively. For everything we said about Edwards and how polished he is as a first baseman, you can take that to an even higher level of praise when it comes to Banfield. He is already one of the better defensive catchers in all of professional baseball right now. Um, He has that compact build that really helps him block balls in the dirt and get rid of the ball quickly. His pop time in terms of how quickly he gets rid of the ball on stolen base attempts is elite. Through a big chunk of this past season in Clinton, he was catching more than 50% of attempted base stealers. That is unthinkable at the major league level and unheard of um, at almost any level of competition to have that type of efficiency in throwing out runners. He had single games, I remember, with three or four caught ceilings apiece. It took pretty deep into the year for opponents to realize that they needed to be more selective running against him. And so by by the end of the year, uh, the caught ceiling rate came back down to earth a little bit, but the skill set is there. And going up to higher levels of competition, he's going to continue to take some opponents by surprise with that amazing throwing arm that he has and his ability to release the ball. It's a lot of fun to watch him play defense, and you can't say that all that much about many catchers to actually be entertained by the quality that he puts at that position. Um, The question is going to be how far the bat takes him in coming off this season Uh, It is a question mark about whether he'll be promoted or not. There are a few catchers in the system behind him. Uh, We're not going to go into great detail about them quite yet, but Dustin Skelton, Keegan Fish, drafted over the last couple of years, um, limited sample sizes in at the professional level so far, so we don't have a great read about on their hitting ability quite yet. 
Um, so you don't want Banfield blocking them. At the same time, you don't want to push him up to a level of competition that is unfair to him at this point. That's going to be a big decision for the Marlins heading into 2020 is where they think Banfield is ready to play and how exactly he can find himself as an offensive player. In sports media, there is not accountability for most of the predictions that we make, unless you have some obsessive fans that are following you every step of the way. The wrong predictions usually get lost to history. The ones you get right, maybe you emphasize a little bit more. I want to be as thorough as possible in these previews, and one player who faded out of the discussion this past year was first baseman Sean Reynolds, who I was very high on entering 2019. He had been in a position to be the everyday first baseman for Clinton after leading the New York Penn League in home runs at age 20 in 2018. He had that immense power that was finally translating to games, six foot seven inch frame, and he started to fill out that frame, power to all fields, very excited about him and the fit that he had within an organization that was otherwise lacking in these obvious power hitters, but he flopped in 2019 a season that was split between Clinton and Batavia once he was demoted midway through the year, a 172 batting average, 172. 291 on base percentage was more acceptable, 348 slugging, 13 home runs in his 375 plate appearances, so still showing some over-the-fence power, but didn't take that step forward that he was supposed to, and statistically, he's one of the more unusual players that you'll find anywhere in baseball. He struck out nearly 50% of his plate appearances this year. 50%. Every other time he came to bat, he whiffed. A lot of those are looking. Um, The fact that he has such a large strike zone to cover, this is the same problem that affects any similar size player from Stanton, Giancarlo Stanton, to Aaron Judge is even a better example. At that height, um, it's just impossible to cover every stretch of the strike zone when you're so tall. Um, but he's taken it to such an extreme degree with how often he takes strike three or is, isn't able to line up the bat. And that's a big limiting factor because if you're striking out so often at low A and short season A, um, history shows that those guys just do not make it all the way through the minors. I still love his athleticism that he has. That shows itself in both his over-the-fence power and in his defense. He's surprisingly good as a defender at first base. He's still only 21 years old. He'll be 22 entering next year, likely to repeat at Clinton. And he's someone, if he makes a few right adjustments in his swing, he could see his stock rise uh, immediately and very dramatically. The more likely scenario is that, yeah, he's just he's stuck until he can figure it out because that strikeout rate is just not going to play as he moves up in the food chain. I still believe very much in his intangibles and in the gifts that he has. So someone to monitor at least early next season as he's repeating the low A level. And another curiosity, who you got to see on the Marlins as a September call-up at the very end of the year, Tyler Heineman, who before that was with AAA New Orleans for the final few months of the year. And with NOLA, he put up an amazing batting line, even when you adjust for the AAA conditions, a 341 batting average, 397 on base, 622 slugging with 10 homers in his 182 plate appearances. Not regarded as a top prospect by any means. He was acquired via trade from the Diamondbacks organization who didn't value him much. 
and he just continued to mash. He forced his way up as a September call-up, being on the roster as a third catcher. He barely played down the stretch, only started a couple games, but in those couple games, he did some nice things offensively, had a clutch home run against the Mets to help eliminate the Mets from playoff contention. That was very satisfying. Heineman remains in the organization after being uh, outrighted back to the minors, not on the 40-man roster at this time. As we mentioned, there's this big void in catcher depth for the Marlins. Everybody between Jorge Alfaro and Nick Fortes, it's a big void of questionable abilities by the catchers at those middle levels. And with Wallach, Chad Wallach, the question about his health and what that will be like coming into the new year, uh, there's that chance that Heineman will be able to earn his way back onto the 40-man roster and even the opening day roster Depending on what the Marlins do this offseason, there will be opportunities to improve via trade and free agency, and they shouldn't hesitate to make those improvements if there's someone they feel is undervalued on the market. They certainly have the payroll flexibility to handle that. It was still satisfying to see Heineman finally achieve his major league dream at the end of the year, and he's a nice guy to have in the organization who... you don't necessarily want to see him get extended looks as a catcher. You'd hope that there's someone a bit more toolsy, someone that like Alfaro, who's always in that primary catcher position. But you could do worse than having someone like Heinemann in the organization. And that's where he is for the time being. So I'll be curious to see what he does in spring training, whether he can validate the great performance he put up in 2019. <laughs> As a reminder, we have another podcast episode coming up very soon, an exclusive interview with a Fox Sports Florida personality. Do not miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to the Fish Stripes podcast on Apple Pods, Google, Spotify, Podbean, whatever you use. Just search Fish Stripes and subscribe to us to get it. All new episodes and other stories about the Marlins are covered on our website, fishstripes.com. Get more mini updates and entertainment teases from our podcasts on our social media feeds at fish stripes on twitter and instagram facebook wherever and you can always contact me personally as well eli sussman on twitter or email the comment section on our website i make myself as accessible as possible to keep you informed and entertained throughout this marlins off season we're going to keep it current and keep it fun This ultimate Marlins depth chart series will continue in November. We're about halfway through, but still a few key positions to get to. So far, I hope we've shined the light on some interesting young players that can impact the Marlins for the better in the present and the future. Thank you so much for being a part of this community that we've built around the Marlins and associated topics. I'm Eli Sussman. Go Fish!